Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and a special welcome to the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I do see several guests in the chat room, and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. Well, tonight's show will focus on pension files of African Americans in the War of 1812. Have you taken time to read a pension file from the War of 1812? Have you ever considered that people of African descent were in that war? Well, tonight's show, we're going to discuss African Americans in the War of 1812 files, and I'm happy to have genealogist Sharon Baptiste Gillums back on the show to share information that can help you understand the role played by African Americans in this important war. Sharon Baptiste Gillums is a native of Galveston, Texas, with paternal ancestral roots in St. Mary Parish, Louisiana, and maternal roots in Fort Bend County, Texas. A lifelong interest in her family's history led to an active involvement in genealogical research over the past 25 years. Her career spans 40 years in education, recently retiring as associate professor at Riverside Community College. Ms. Gillums is a research associate at the Mary Moody Northern Endowment in Galveston, Texas, where she is responsible for the Moody Family and Business Archive of manuscripts and photographs that date to the early 1800s. So let me give a warm welcome to Sharon Baptiste Gillums to research at the National Archives and beyond. Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bernice. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. 
And it's and always course, a pleasure to have you. These records are exciting to me. They are so exciting, Sharon. But I, I have a question for you because yeah. this is one, This these records are records that we don't hear a lot about. Yet we know that the Federation of Genealogical Societies has had a campaign out encouraging people to provide funds to just so that we can get these records online. So tell me, why don't you hear a lot of African Americans talking about the records, the 1812 pension files? Well, many people are unaware that blacks were even involved in any of these revolutionary struggles that the United States uh, of America fought. But, of course, we were always in the struggle for freedom with this country. In fact, Crispus Attucks was the first patriot to die in the Boston Massacre. So we were involved all the way back in the beginning. And certainly we were involved in the War of 1812, which was basically an extension of the Revolutionary War. And... uh, Black soldiers were, or sailors were very much involved in that war. So a little bit of understanding about how blacks served in that war will help people to understand that they, their relatives may, in fact, have served in the war in a variety of different capacities. So what well, I'd like to do you is just give us, take us back and give us just an overview of the war and then bring us into the, the role that they played, the various capacities. Great. So what I'll do is start off with the causes and the combatants. Who was involved in the War of 1812? It was a very short war, so it's not one that we hear a lot about. It's, it was fought between June 18, 1812, and February of 1815. So that's a little about two and a half years. The war was between the United States and Great Britain, with some involvement by the French and the Native Americans here in this country who had some involvement. The causes of the war were uh, British disrespect. They were getting onto American vessels and seizing what they considered to be deserters. They, the British really wanted to control the American coastline and blockade shipping lanes to Europe. And uh, that's how it started. And, in fact, one of the catal- catalyzing events in 1807 was something called the Chesapeake-Leopard Affair, which is in 1807 when the British boarded a ship and they went on board to seize three black men who were on that ship and because blacks were in between all the various different combatants sometimes they fought for on the side of the british who were offering them inducements and sometimes on the side of the united states also offering them inducements so these three black men were on an american ship and um it was seized by a British ship, and those men were taken off. And that's when Commander James Barron, you hear the famous uh, the famous statement, don't give up the ship. That's what that was all about. So now the geography of the war really kind of uh, encapsulizes uh, who may have been in the war. It was fought largely a water-based war, 
along the United States-Canadian border. So that means the Great Lakes and the Detroit River, the Buffalo area, and the St. Lawrence River, all of those were involved. Also, the Chesapeake Bay, as it went up uh, into uh, Maryland and Pennsylvania. It was also fought in the New Orleans area. And there was an entire British blockade along the entire eastern coastline to keep American ships from interfering and uh, capitalizing on European trade. So the British were still trying to dominate European trade. And so that's uh, a little bit of background about the war itself. And, of course, black men were all in these areas, and they became involved fighting on not only the United States side, but on the British side, and both sides were encouraging them to join our side, we'll give you freedom, join our side, we'll give you more freedom, and sometimes neither one of those uh, situations turned out to be the best for them. So Africans served in the War of 1812 in different capacities. When I say different capacities, some people that fought in the war won't be found in the pension indexes because, or in the pension files because some people were enslaved and they were conscripted to be body servants. They were taken to war along with their uh, enslavers uh, to help in the war. Certainly they would not be uh, in the war. Some of the people who served in the war that were black were privateers. They were merchant marines who were serving on ships. And these private ships were also involved in the war. One uh, such person that's very famous is a man named George Roberts. He was a privateer, and he served, uh, he was merchant marine, and he fought in a number of wars because the ships that were private ships were also involved in the war. Some of the people who were involved in the war that also will not be found were enslaved, and they tried to enlist in the Army sometimes. Sometimes they would let them, sometimes they wouldn't. Uh, the Navy would let them in more often, uh, slaves and free men of color, because they had such a reputation for their merchant, uh, for their marine skills. And then there were some, even some uh, all-black units, and those are specifically, uh, particularly one that was in Louisiana that we'll talk a little bit more about. Okay. So that's a little background on, on the war itself. Okay. Well, it's it's really interesting that you would mention that those who were enslaved or were conscripted, you might not even find them or any records of them in the war, but yet they were still in the war. Yes, they were there. That's exactly right. So the only place you would be able to find information about them would be in notes of soldiers who were actually enlisted in the war or who served in the war, in manuscripts, letters, and those kinds of things. One manuscript uh, and a photograph that I got from the Moody Collection included uh, an enslaved person whose name was Uncle Bacchus, B-A-C-C-H-U-S. And the note mm-hmm. that was attached to his tintype said, he served in the War of 1812 as a body servant. And so he was a perfect example of someone who was actually there, who actually served in the war, who but who would never be found in the records themselves. So that's right. partially why we as African-American researchers don't look in the War of 1812 records, because our service was 
was very varied and very scattered, and many people who served will not be found in the records. But still there are many who will. Mhm, mhm. So t- uh, tell us a little bit more about the uh, the legislation. Just what kind okay. of benefits would they receive that they did serve in the war? Okay, well that's a very good question because uh, ever since the United States started fighting wars, they offered these inducements and benefits to people to serve in the war, somewhat like the benefits that our military uh, personnel get today. There have always been inducements to serve in the war. And these are pension acts related to the various wars, and they date all the way back to 1776 when the Revolutionary War was fought, and they come forward all the way to today. So one of the things that's important to understand is that the pension acts are public statutes at large, and then you can you would be able to find them. And uh, Genealogy Quest has military pension acts uh, laid out in a very organized way, and they're important to know because the pension index that we're going to talk about today relates to two specific pension acts. That is the one of uh, February 14, 1871, and March 9, 1878. And the kinds of benefits that they would get would be land. They might get bounty land, and they might get pension. They might get widow's pension. And each one of the pension acts lays out in detail exactly what a soldier might might qualify for based on their service. And so if the War of 1812 was fought in 1812 to 1815, and the first Pension Act that we're going to be looking at is in 1871, many people had already died by the time those pension uh, benefits became available to them. They had either died or they were unaware of them. So um, that also reduced the number of people who would apply for the pensions. That's right. That's a long time. That's a long time. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a long time. So that's 60 years after the act, after the, that's f- right. the fact. So many people had already died mm-hmm. or they didn't qualify on the basis of something else. Now, you know, if the government gives you anything, they make you qualify, they make you justify, they make you document. And this is the beauty of the pension file. If one of your ancestors was uh, is in the pension file, you can uh, be assured that there is a large amount of genealogical information that the government collected to make sure they qualified on the basis of their service and they identify ancestors or uh, descendants family members, vital information. So that's the importance of the pension file is that it not only documents their service in this war, but the pension files themselves contain extensive amount of genealogical information that um, researchers will find uh, just spectacular related to people who are actually in the file. So... That's why I was so excited that there is such a great effort to uh, get these files digitized because they live at the National Archives, of course, 
but they're about 65% finished with digitizing them, and they will be available uh, for free at various different locations, including Fold3 and probably Family Search as well. Right. And for those people that even want to look at a, a War of 1812 pension file, an original, they can't do it right now because all of those files are pretty much embargoed that have not been copied and put on full three. And as I well know, because I had to call in the troops <laughs> to get <laughs> access to a pension file, because I think they've uh, digitized up to the letter L, and That's one right. of the files that I was excited to get was uh, – a man named Jordan B. Noble. So I think the best uh, thing that I can do for you to, is to tell you a little bit about Jordan B. Noble and take you through some of the information that I was able to find out about him uh, through his pension file. He actually was a free man of color who arrived in Louisiana as a very young kid and served as the drummer in the War of uh, 1812. And so his pension file was probably an inch or more thick, and that means that there is just an extensive amount of information about him and his service and his life from the time that he served all the way until the time that he died, and he lived to be into his 90s. So the amount of information in there is is tremendous. So with with all that said, you might think, well, well, why did they even serve? Why did blacks even want to serve? Because a lot of times they had promises of freedom for their service. The United States didn't have that many people signed up, so they were promising enslaved people freedom. Now, sometimes they did not get it, but they were promised that. And then those free men of color who already were free, they solidified their rights of freedom by being able to own that bounty land and get a pension from the government, and also to demonstrate that they were patriots too, that they loved their country, that they wanted the respect, they wanted to serve just like everybody else. And of course, that pension and bounty land was an opportunity for them to increase and improve their status in, in life. That's right, so, and that what you can't. I mean, just think about that that opportunity, that promise right of freedom. Yes, and then that, that promise of freedom. I mean, why not serve if indeed that promise uh, became a reality? Materialized. Sometimes it mm-hmm. did. Sometimes it did not. And uh, sadly, that is the case even today. You know, promises are made. Nevertheless. There are people who are documented in the pension application files, and it's worth going to. You know how I love these obscure record groups because um, as compared to a record group that relates to everybody in the United States, they're asking kind of generalized questions, generalized information like the federal census. However, in an obscure record group, it's going to be related to the more specific details of, of an individual's actual life. And in the case of these pension files, it's about their service in this in the War of 1812 and their application for pensions and bounty land for themselves and for their uh, spouse 
and their descendants. So there's quite a lot of a lot of information in the application, such as a personal account of their war experiences, whatever their company, their rank, and their duties were, what dates they served. Um, they even talk about who they served with, the companions they served with, who were the officers that they served under. They took depositions from neighbors and friends to make sure that this person was the person that that actually served in the war. Remember, we didn't have any uh, uh, driver's license. There was no uh, photo IDs. There were no there were no um, uh, means of documenting, many times no birth certificate. And so depositions became a very important way to identify people. So you have statements, firsthand statements from neighbors and friends and fellow soldiers documenting who they were. And then there were there was even medical information, especially uh, related to any kind of injury that may have occurred uh, for uh, to the soldier while they were serving. And as pension acts evolved, there was even pensions available for those who uh, were injured in the war. And these, the, the pension legislation evolved. So they weren't all available at the same time, the benefits. And so it was up to the soldier and the soldier's family to figure out and keep track of that. And there were usually attorneys involved to help them to track the pension legislation and to make application. So also in the pension applications, there's family information and vital information. Their age at the time of the filing, of course, that's going to point right back to when they were born. Their residences are identified from the time they served in the war up until the time that they applied. The date of their marriage is in there, especially if there was a widow who filed for the pension. Always the wife's maiden name is in there, sometimes the dates and births and names of their children. And then there's always that interesting and unexpected other that I just love to find because you didn't expect it to be there, but there it is, and it's usually the juiciest part of the application file. Oh, so yes. If you I mean, think I, your I ancestors remember. might be... If you think your ancestors might be involved, definitely take a look at the public statutes at large, those pension acts, and you can find them at Genealogy Quest under Military Pension and Pension Acts. That way you can see exactly what the soldier had to qualify for, had to meet the criteria in order to qualify. Wow. And I have a question for you that's yep. coming out of the chat. They want to know if you've noticed any patterns between the War of 1812 and the Revolutionary War Service? That is, well, if I a family member had members that served in the Revolutionary War, is it likely that the same family had members that served in the War of 1812? That's a great question, and I would say yes, because first of all, you know that they lived during that period of time. And if they served in the Revolutionary War, it's likely that they were either a free free person of color or they gained their freedom as a result of serving in the Revolutionary War. So if they served in the Revolutionary War, they were of the right age, and it's very possible that they served in uh, the War of 1812 just uh, shortly thereafter. So it's a really good uh, indicator that, one, your ancestor was in that place and time, 
and two, that they were already had a record of serve, of military service. So I would say yes. Okay. Great question. Well, Sharon, we're going to take we're going to take just a very quick break and come right back and continue to talk about the the records and you can give us some examples of what you found in the file. So this is a very quick break and we'll be right back. Okay. Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, now you have been listening to Sharon Batiste-Gillums discuss African Americans in the War of 1812 files. And so, Sharon, let's just continue to talk about this war Folks are saying they're loving this conversation. They love military records. And so, yes, keep telling us, keep educating us about the War of 1812. Well, I I hope you have access to a couple of images that I I shared with you because as I talk about the the index, I'd like like for you to be able to see it because and some of the just some examples of some of the uh items that you'll find in the file itself. The index is actually the envelope, a large envelope, the outside of the envelope that holds the pension file itself. Some of the files are of course thicker than others. Whenever there's a file to be had, you always want there to be some type of controversy because that thickens the file. The the more controversy and questions have to be answered, the more documentation it has to be provided. So on the pension index itself, it is uh, the envelope and has certain information. The soldier's name, the widow's name, the description of service, the enlistment and discharge date, the residence of the soldier and the widow, the death of the soldier and the widow, the application type and number, and the bounty land number. There are some abbreviations that go with that, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. But the pension index themselves is 
and National Archives Record Group 15, microfilm publication M313. There are 102 rolls of microfilm, and they are arranged alphabetically. And uh, so if you want to see it and actually hold it in your hand, you'll have to go to the National Archives. But, of course, there are other ways to get access to it. You can actually find it on... uh, uh, it's on Ancestry. You can search for it on Ancestry. You can also go to Internet Archives, and it'll have it in that great book form that I really like. Uh, the and it's called it's actually a printed copy of of uh, M uh, publication M three one three. So there are ways that you can get access to it. So I would urge you to try to to go there and find it. Um, You can even order it by mail, the pension applications by mail from the National Archives by using form NATF85. And just a shout-out to thank uh, the efforts to preserve those pension records uh, because it's a very important source of information and uh, glad to know that you'll have dig- free digital access to it on Fold 3. So I already talked Well, you have a question it. coming out of the chat, and if they just want to know, are they all indexed? Yes. They're, all, they're not all indexed at this point, but they will be when the, when the digitizing is, is finished. I mean, when you say are they all indexed, yes, they all are indexed, but they're not all digitized. So there right. is an index that includes everyone who applied for uh, a pension based on the public statute from February 14, 1871, and the one from March 9, 1878. So this pension index is related to people who applied under those two uh public statutes, and you will see throughout the file that as the the soldier is applying, there is reference to the pension acts under which they have filed, because that gives the criteria, and the soldiers themselves and the widows were very aware of what the criteria criteria for each one of those pension acts was. And so they had to be very attentive to it because they had to meet those eligibility requirements. It would just be like uh, being becoming eligible for Medicare. You have to meet certain requirements, and you have to document that you've met those requirements. And so the pension acts themselves lay that out in detail. Okay. So now can we just get into uh, one of the – one of the people who served and talk about Absolutely. his pension fund. Yes. He's so interesting. I just loved his story because, first of all, he lived such a long life, that, and he continued to serve in the military. He came from Augusta, Georgia, when he was only 11 years old, and he joined the Louisiana Militia in 1812, and he was the drummer for the Battle of New Orleans. So one of the great battles of the War of 1812 took place in at the Battle of New Orleans, and he was just a little boy, 11, 12 years old, who served in that war as the drummer. And at that point, the drummer had a very important uh, 
role to play. There was no walkie-talkie, so the communication of where everything was going was through the drummer. They followed the drummer. In all that chaos, this little boy played the drum. He lived to be over over 90 years old. He served in subsequent wars, including the Mexican War, the Civil War. So he has a long line of service. So as we look at his index to his pension file, we can see that he applied as a survivor of the War of 1812. So on his pension index which is the envelope, outer envelope, it says SO, Survivor Original. Those are some of the uh, abbreviations I'm talking about. SO, and it gives a number that says he, he applied for a pension as a survivor, and his original application number was 22074. The next thing that's on there is SC, his survivor certificate. That means... He applied as a survivor in the original application, and he was awarded a certificate as a survival. So even right on the front, you can tell right away that, okay, Noble actually got a pension because not everybody did, even when they applied. He got a survivor certificate, and he was assigned a number, 19527. He also received bounty land. But his bounty land warrant, and that that abbreviation is WT, bounty land warrant, was for his service in the Mexican War. Also on there is information about what his duties were as a musician, who he served with, and his service in the various wars, including not just his service in the War of 1812, but his subsequent service as he continued to apply for Uh, pension benefits from the other wars in which he served. So that's just on the outside of of the pension index envelope. Now, once my dear friend was able to get me access to the file itself, then I was able to go through the file and find some consistent kinds of things that are really interesting. The first thing that uh, you'll definitely want to find is that declaration of the soldier for his pension. This is basically the first application that they fill out, which includes that basic information that says, I'm a soldier, I fought in the War of 1812, and I'm applying for the pension. And right on there, it tells you what the pension uh, act is that he's applying for. And uh, it's a definite narrative that he actually uh, narrated to the person who filled it out, and it has his original signature on it. So he was a literate man, and he was able to sign his own application, and he also uh, described that he was engaged in the Battle of the 21st of December, 1814, during the night, and also in the Battle of January the 8th, 1815, at Camp Jackson, called the um, present-day Camp Chalmette, after having been mustered, and he again re-enlisted and, said, and served for five years, and he received a land warrant from the government. So 
that's just on one sheet of paper. That's quite a bit of information to find out about Jordan B. Noble. So from that declaration. Now, I have, I have, just, to, I have a question for you. Someone yes. wants to know, was he free? Yes, he was a free man of color. When he came okay. from Georgia, he was a free person. And so he served in uh, that uh, battalion of free men of color down in Louisiana. Yes, he was a free man of color. And if you remember, I talked about um, soldiers who served in all-black units. This was one of those all-black units down in uh, in New Orleans. And there's a great book about this called The Negro Troops of Antebellum, Louisiana, written by uh, Dr. Roland C. McConnell. And when I began to research uh, free men of color in the Battle of New Orleans, I had no idea at that time that this definitive uh, book about that was written by my my son's great uncle, uh, <laughs> Dr. Roland C. McConnell. My son is Eric B. McConnell. His grandfather's brother wrote this book. He was a longtime professor at Morgan State University. So it's a great book, and it talks about this. So just from that first piece of paper, the declaration where he's saying, I declare I was a soldier, we know that he's 71 years old when he applied on July 19th, uh, 1871. He was a resident of New Orleans. He was married to a woman named Pauline Evaniste. So now we have her maiden name. Very important because a lot of times we lose our women because we don't know their maiden names. We can't find them. So in these pension files, we find that they always ask for the woman's maiden name. It gave their it gave his uh, date of his marriage, and it talks about his service during that war and when he was discharged in New Orleans. Now. Similar to many cases of people applying for uh, benefits from the government, there was controversy. So this man was controversy all the way. So after he filed his declaration, they wrote him back and said, we have no evidence of service for you in the War of 1812. It says, in the pension claim of Jordan B. Noble, number 22074, remember we saw that, survivor original uh, application number as the survivor of the war of 1812 under the act of February 14, 1871. That is the pension act that he applied under. It goes on to say there is no evidence of the claimant's service in the war of 1812. It appears that whatever land warrant he was issued was for his service in the Mexican War, and he needs to submit a correct statement of service and the number of his land warrant, if he received one, are requested. So he's applying for pension, and the government is questioning whether he actually served. So as a result of that, he had to provide documentation of his service. So that meant depositions. We have the Department of the Interior asking him to furnish official evidence of his enrollment, his muster, his service, and his duty. He wrote back to them and gave another deposition that says, and they're telling him to find certain people who served with him. Well, of course, he's 71 years old. That's unusual at the time 
in in the 1870s for a man to be 71 years old. So his response says, Silas Jonas was a pension certificate holder, but he's in such a state of idiocy and so aged that he cannot make any declaration in this case. So poor Mr. Noble was struggling to provide documentation. So what he was able to do was to offer to show his medal that was presented to him for his service. So that became his documenting evidence to show that he indeed did serve in the War of 1812. Oh, I love it. (laughs) What a story. What a story. How could you get those kinds of details? And we have pages and pages of details to, to this effect. As I said, his file is an inch thick. So I'm able to only pull just a few of the uh, the documents just to share the range of information that uh, you can find in this. So his story continues. He's a fascinating person. His story, his story continues. So he was actually awarded his survivor's pension certificate. And remember on the index uh, there was another number and his SC or survivor certificate number was 19527 and right on the pension certificate and I have a copy of that uploaded for you the it tells that he was awarded this certificate based on the act of February 14 1874 that his certificate was dated the 5th of November 1872 and that he was awarded $8 a month beginning 14 February 1874. So you would think, oh, thank goodness he got his he got his certificate. You know, he actually struggled. If, I could, if there's one thing I can say for Jordan B. Noble, he persevered. He did not give up, even in the face of them telling him time and time again, you know, questioning his service time and time again, uh, that uh, he was not in the war, he persisted and did everything he could throughout to apply. So we got all happy when we found out that he got his certificate. Then I get into his file a little deeper, and I find that he has an application for a new certificate. I'm thinking, now what is this about? So then, of course, as in all of this, there is a narrative that he has narrated He's given a narrative statement to the person taking the application, and this is what it says, his application for a new certificate. It says that he received a pension certificate numbered 19527, bearing the date of 5 November 1872, and that he has not bartered, sold, assigned, or pledged his pension certificate or any interest therein, but on the 6th day of August, 1877, on his way from past Christiane, Mississippi, to the city of New Orleans, in the Mobile and New Orleans Railroad, his pocket was picked, and the contents, including his pension certificate, was stolen, and he therefore prayed for a duplicate be issued in his favor. So, you know, your heart goes out to him, you know. There's no... There are no carbon copies. There are no, there's no photocopies. There's nothing. Everything is in its original form. And his, after struggling to prove his service, got 
stolen from him, he had to apply for a new certificate. What a great story. What a great story. Wonderful story. Mm-hmm. What a great story. It, and he just seems to be one of these people who uh, whose uh, struggles continued, and he just was just as strong in trying to prove his service as he were, as they were in trying to prove he did not serve. And the same thing happened to him when he had to fight to prove his service in the war with Mexico. He had to get an affidavit from his captain certifying his service in the 1st Regiment of Louisiana Volunteers in uh, 1853. And the details of that uh, pension information application is also in his pension file. So the pension file did not just include his application and supporting documentation for the War of 1812. He served in subsequent wars, and his file was so big because every time he became eligible for a pension act, a new pension act was passed and legislation was made him apply, uh, eligible for a new pension fi- pension benefit, he applied, and they questioned him every time. Now, I don't know if his questioning or if this level of questioning would be the same in the service of uh, maybe a white soldier, but his service was questioned every time he applied for a pension benefit. He had to prove it. So he was, in fact, uh, qualified for bounty land claim under a different act uh, related to the Mexican War. Later, it became apparent that he would also uh, qualify for bounty land under the War of 1812, but only if he had never applied for or received another bounty land uh, warrant. And, of course, uh, that became another issue. His bounty land application was being handled by an attorney, and there there is a letter in here where Noble revokes the power of attorney for his uh, from the attorneys who was assigned to his case because they weren't making any progress on he on his claim, and he selected new attorneys. So his story just gets better and better. And I love to see his handwriting because over 80 years, you can see how his handwriting changed but remained the same but certainly deteriorated with age. So by now, Mm -hmm. we're in 1856, and he's uh, releasing his attorneys for lack of progress on his claim. He got that bounty land claim, and then when he became became eligible to receive a bounty claim for the War of 1812 in new legislation, he was denied that claim because he had already received bounty land in 1853 or 1856 for his service in the war of uh, with Mexico. So he was not given his bounty land uh, for the War of 1812. So that's wow. why the pension acts are important because – uh, they kept coming online, and the soldiers kept applying for them, and they kept making, you know, making sure that he met the eligibility requirements. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I, 
I can't say enough about uh, if you think your ancestors lived in any of these areas, like along the uh, Canadian border, up even all the way up to New York or down in New Orleans, at, around the 1800s, early 1800s, you might find that they uh, they served. So it's definitely worth a search into the pension files, and even as a widow of uh, someone who filed, because at, at some point widows were able to to file. Now, right. the story for Mr. Now I have a question for you. Yes. Where was his bounty land located? Um, you know, I did not research where his bounty land was located because most of the people who received bounty land did not occupy the bounty land themselves. They were able mm-hmm. to, and that's another one of the benefits, they could actually uh, use an attorney to sell their bounty land, and it was right. usually located in the areas that were being opened up for uh, for uh, pioneering in the, the western areas. So he's living in New York, New Orleans. He's in the city. Was he going to go to the you know backwoods for? So he he sold his bounty land. He he never occupied his bounty land at all, which was mm-hmm. the case for many people. Now, later on, he even filed a claim that he received a double hernia. And, again, this his case was questioned whether he received the double hernia or not, whether he had a dermal hernia or not. So it was referred to the Chief Board of Review, and they required a special examination. So in his file are the medical records related to that with with drawings where the double hernia was, and the doctor, yes, said, yes, he has a bad hernia, and it's really bad. But they wanted to find documentation that he didn't have the hernia when he served in the war. Now, how could you do that? I mean, that's catch-22. But those Mm -hmm. were the kinds of of, uh, challenges that he was faced with, and his, uh, his claim was rejected because they had no record of competent evidence of the origin of the double hernia in the service and in the line of duty, and uh, he was unable to furnish competent evidence. But his statement in that claim was so uh, clear. He described everything that happened, where he was, how he was crossing a river, he slipped on a log, he fell on the log, and how he fell straddled the log and it ruptured him, and he hadn't been the same since. None of that matters. Mm-hmm. You know, so just a wonderful, what a fascinating wonderful, story. Wonderful, fascinating yes. story. Fascinating yes. story. It, you know, you've just shown us just the value of that the file and the information that's in those files. Um, it's something that perhaps even if it's not somebody that you know, go in and read a file anyway because you can gain a lot of information regarding the war and also looking at how they proved the claim and the evidence that they had to provide. Now, are you going to share with us another case study? Yes, I have I have a couple of interesting ones that I'd like to uh, to share with you. One is uh, a widow's pension application. This is a woman whose name was Marie L. Glapion. 
she was the widow of a man named Christopher or Christoph Glapion, and she filed a widow's original, and they call it a W.O., widow's original, and her number was 11616. So she actually wrote a letter to uh, apply. She said, I respectfully state that my name is Marie Glapion, widow of late deceased veteran 1815, Christophe Glapion, in parentheses, she puts he's white, in the War of 1812. And I'm applying under, lo- under the law of February 14th, 1871. I made application for pension. So she's applying. She's aware of the Pension Act that she is qualified based on uh, as a widow of a soldier who served. And she makes mention of the fact that Kristoff is white and that she herself is black. So that should really uh, create some interesting reading. So in the in the brief for her widow's pension, uh, which is basically that summary that's right up front, that declaration that says, okay, here's what we think so far, it, it summarizes her her claim and their response, which says there's no roles of this captain that this claimant says her her husband uh, served under, and she hasn't come back for three months you know, to reply to our calls. And this claim because there's no proof of his service, and there is proof that he abandoned her. So. There we have a situation where we have a a black woman with a white uh, soldier who's uh, applying as as his widow, and they said, no, he abandoned you, and we can't find any uh, evidence of his service. So, you know, there are parallels that I can see to our veterans even today trying to get the benefits and qualify for the benefits that they have earned. And uh, it's rather heartbreaking that things change and remain the same. But this particular lady, they may have stepped on the wrong toes because Marie L. Glapion is the famous Voodoo New Orleans voodoo priestess Marie Laveau <laughs> Glapion. Uh-huh. So she may have had <laughs> she she may have had a little bit of extra for them after she was rejected for that claim. So most of you, if you're from the South, you've heard of Marie Laveau. That one I thought was interesting. So in addition to those who served in all. Uh, black units like the one in Louisiana that fought in the Battle of New Orleans. I also wanted to highlight that there were uh, blacks who served, actually enlisted in the uh, Navy uh, in the northern areas. And one such pension was for a woman named Mary Brown. Uh, She was the husband of Robert Brown, and he was actually enlisted in the United States Navy Marine Service, and he served under Commander Perry. So that is an example of uh, a black man who was actually enlisted and as a private under in the Navy uh, d- 
during the War of 1812. And her case, of course, is no less uh, no less controversial and certainly interesting uh, because they misspelled the name in several places, and so they were questioning whether or not it was Brown, whether it was Bronin, and one officer who is responding to this says um, he. He didn't think that this was the same person because this person was a black man and he served in the Marines, and so he really didn't think it was the same person that they were pensioned. So she actually had to prove uh, that uh, the pension file was was correct. And the officer said it is it was improperly issued as the marine officer states that the bounty land service was not performed by a colored man so uh controversy continues uh robert brown or robert brownin colored but he was actually enlisted in the united states navy and had to uh prove his service in in the navy so, so there Mar- you but it. Mary Brown was she was also black. Yes. Or was she yes. white? She was no, black. She okay, was black. but they just questioned okay. But they didn't be- because there weren't that many blacks who were actually enlisted, especially in the Marines. Uh-huh. So they questioned okay. whether or not this was actually the person because she said, No, my husband got a bounty land warrant and he actually did serve, and now I'm I'm applying for a widow's pension, and so they mm-hmm. were saying, well, if he got a bounty land warrant, it was it was improperly issued because the Marines they're not usually black. This mm-hmm. this service was not performed by a colored man, but it was, and uh, more blacks were in the Navy because they were so highly respected as uh, mariners back then, and they were more accepted in the Navy because they served in uh, shipping capacities throughout the world, and they were very well well respected. There's a really good book uh, called Amongst My Best Men, and and it's about the blacks who served in the uh, African Americans in the War of 1812 in the shipping capacity, and it's by Gerard T. Altoff, A-L-T-O-F-F. Really good book, and it describes in vivid detail uh, soldiers who were actually enlisted in the Navy and the Marines and the nature of their service and, of course, those who were privateers or who were conscripted as well, and it talks about those. So there are some really good references that – if you have interest in the war itself or if you want to know a little bit about it to see whether or not it's worth it for you to go and research your own ancestors, there are some uh, really good references that I was able to use to give me background on it. And it really just encourages you to know that, yes, blacks uh, created this country from its beginning, and they they served in all the capacities necessary to make this country what it is today, even at a time when they were being denied their own freedoms. They took it uh, seriously. They wanted to serve and fight for the freedoms that were 
this constitutional, this United States built its constitution on, even when they were being denied those freedoms themselves. So right. who's out there going to go get comment. some of these? Yes, indeed. We have a comment coming out of the chat, and I'll just read uh, some of it. It says, some things never change. Over 100 years ago and today, people doubted the actions and service of black men, and today even the humanity of, of black men is doubted. So it's just very interesting to to hear what you are saying tonight about the service uh, that has been provided Um and there's a lot more, and I can't see it, uh, but it's it's definitely worth it for everyone to to look in the index to see if what they can find because the they're definitely there in the 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 records the just just talking about the the pension files and the three case studies uh, certainly I hope has inspired others to take a look. What would you say? I hope so too. I hope so too mm-hmm. because if nothing else, it makes you know um, how much we deserve to be here and have enjoy all the freedoms that everybody else does. Um, I'm going to go back to Mr. Jordan B. Noble for just one second because sure. one of the things that really touched me toward the end of his life was that he became quite destitute, and he was writing to the Department of the Interior, uh, almost pleading for relief. In his in his own handwriting, he writes these impassioned letters to them, uh, asking for them to take take action on his claim. His claim had been lingering for five years, and by now he's an old man. He's in his 80s, and he's got uh, double hernias. He's incapacitated. He's asking for them. And I just want to read you and uh, a little bit about that. And I think this this page, second page of his letter, is also up as one of the images. And he's he's already described his five years of struggle and waiting for uh, his pension to, or waiting waiting for them to grant him this pension. He says, I would therefore respectfully beg that you would be uh, pleased to me, to give me an increase on my pension. I am at present drawing a small pension for the War of 1812. He gives the number of the pension certificate, which was a very important number. He said, by doing so, you will be much obliged. Yours most respectfully. Please do something for me, for I'm in much distress and oblige. Yours, J.B. Noble. And sadly, none of that uh, had an impact because the very next year, what they issued to him was a letter, more or less like a certificate, uh, that says this is to certify that the bearer, Jordan B. Noble, is a veteran of 1812. And they said this aged veteran of many wars desires to support himself in his old age by giving field music entertainments in which his historic drum uh, will be used. We ask that the boys everywhere, that's all of you people out there, uh, 
Be good to the old man and help him along. He is an upright, worthy old gentleman and will not attempt to beat, in very large word letters, beat anything but his drum. This is what he got as a result of uh, pleading for some increase in his pension as a result of the uh, disability that he received. How uh, sad uh, right. for him wow. and how much of a parallel it is for so many of our veterans who can't get the, the medical attention they need based on their injuries in the war. So some things change and re- remain the same. That's right. Now same. we have a question. Uh, do you know where he's buried? New Orleans. He is featured in the uh, the New Orleans collection. He's uh, he is in New Orleans for sure. He he lived out his life in New Orleans. In New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And then where can someone find the index? There's a question coming out of the chat. You can go to the um, to Ancestry has the index, but I like Internet Archives. You know, only because actual microfilmed, the actual microfilm of the index in page form. So you're actually flipping the pages at Internet Archive. Right. That's my personal Mm -hmm. bias. That's just my Mm -hmm. personal bias because you can get a feel for the whole record set in the. in the Internet Archives. So you can go to uh, Internet Archives or you can go to Ancestry. And I believe it's probably on uh, Family Search as well. It's it's widely available. The index right. is widely available. But the index, of course, is the pointer. The index will point you to the record. And so whatever record group you're looking for, go find the index first. You can find out who's in there and get an idea of what you're likely to find in the record if you find the index. So definitely go for the index first. Just look up your surnames. If you don't know, look up surnames. And even if if a European or a white person is represented there from that area where your family was located, you may be able to find out – some background information about uh, that soldier. Maybe that soldier had a uh, a body servant. I don't know. But anytime you can provide, you can gather background information about the area, about other people in the area, you have rich information that can be used to write the narrative of your family members because you want to know more than when they were born and when they died. You want to be able to write a rich narrative that includes details of life that they lived in. This was the the juice that they marinated in. If the war was going on in the around the Chesapeake Bay and they lived there, this is the life that they lived. And so you will be able to even find out uh, exceptional details about life at that period of time. Right, and it's very interesting that you would say the juice that they marinated in. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, this has been just an interesting discussion tonight. 
And I'm just hoping that all of you, all of you listeners, go to those files, go to the index. You might be surprised what you find. And volunteer to do some indexing. That's right. And also, you know, right, and they're still collecting donations. So if you want to preserve these pension records, you gotta pay. It costs money. So that's what you need to do. Any closing remarks before we close out tonight's show? Uh, I just thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk to some of the listeners out there. Of course, shout-out to my San Diego African-American History and Genealogy group. Shout-out to all my uh, Samford IGHR faculty members and my genealogy friends. And definitely uh, much appreciation and much respect to you, Ms. Bernice Bennett, for providing opportunities for us to interact with each other and find out more from from each other. We become somewhat isolated as genealogy geeks. We get in our we get in our research path and we forget to get out. So this is a way to connect us and we appreciate you so much. Oh well thank you so very much and hey you come back anytime. I know there are other things that you can share with us, Sharon, and I just love having you uh come on the show. So thank you so very much for sharing this valuable information with us tonight. And everyone else, please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Yes, also in the War of 1812 files. Yes. Therefore, you should follow those clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and, yes, research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio Show. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. Oh, I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexandra Bennett, Good night, everyone. And hey, Maggie, folks, I look forward to seeing all of you in Fort Wayne, Indiana, next week for the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute. Good night, everyone. Good night, Sharon. Good night. Thank you.
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.